0: We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it.
1: Veganism, these days, basks in sort of saintly holiness. Seaweed,
0: why would I want to eat that? It's disgusting, it's rotting, rotting on the beaches, it stings.
2: It's not like a diet where you're trying to lose weight and it's not working. Every time you choose not to eat meat, it will have an impact.
3: This is Generation One from University College London, turning climate science and ideas into action. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of Generation 1. I'm Helen Cheresky, I'm a physicist and oceanographer here at UCL and it is fantastic to be back for another series of podcasts. We're going to be exploring all kinds of different issues relating to the environment and climate change and of course we will be talking to some of the brightest and best and most interesting people from UCL and beyond. Speaking of which, I'm very pleased to be joined by my co-host, Professor Mark Maslin. He's a specialist in climate change in UCL's Department of Geography. Mark, it's nice to be back. What's been going on since we were last here?
4: I have to say, it is so nice to be back on the podcast and I'm really glad that we're doing the second series. But it's been an amazing start to the year. So we've had the IPC mitigation report that came out, which was really hard hitting. It basically said we must cut our emissions by 43% in the next eight years if we're going to have any chance to get to 1.5 degrees. Everybody thought it was a very depressing report, except when you look into it, it has so many solutions, both for transport, energy, building, food, all the things we're going to be discussing on this series. All will be good for the planet and good for the people if politicians listen.
3: I think it's a general theme on this, isn't it? If only everybody listened to us, it'll be fine. Um, But I mean, it has, I think it's been a really interesting couple of months and actually for a very serious reason, which is that the events in Ukraine have actually sparked a lot of discussion about where things come from. I mean, the series of events in the past few years have really highlighted infrastructure, like things that come to us and things that we send to other people that we've always taken for granted. And suddenly, It's all been laid bare, hasn't it? Like you can suddenly people saying, "Oh, well, where does our gas come from? Where does our food come from?" And actually, there's—it feels like there's more debate about those things than there ever has been.
4: I find it really deeply upsetting that experts like yourself have been talking about energy security to politicians for the last two decades, but it takes a pointless war where. Thousands of innocents are being slaughtered to realise that actually we get our gas from Russia and we get our oil from different countries who have questionable sort of uh, histories on human rights. And I think this is an interesting position in geopolitics because already we're seeing the EU. The EU are now accelerating their renewable programme, not because of climate change, to escape their reliance on Russian natural gas.
3: Well, it really does highlight how you know this is a, this is a podcast about climate change, but we can't escape geopolitics and health and justice. These are all folded in, but. We have lots of these topics uh, to be covered in the episodes in this second series. Uh, We're talking about apps and gender and disaster mitigation and cycling and bees. If you've ever wanted to know about bees, we will have a podcast for you. So all of that is coming up in future episodes in this series. But it is time to get on with this episode. And our topic today is plant-based food. Now just before we get into that I want to remind you how you can take part in the podcast we have a website which is ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change and there's all kinds of news and research and lots of different things you can get involved in there do rate and subscribe to the podcast we, we we very much appreciate your feedback and especially your positive feedback um, and do, do share it with your networks and of course we're on Instagram and Twitter with the hashtag UCLGeneration1 so you can comment and discuss things there and of course there is always email and if you'd like to email us it's podcasts with an s at ucl.ac.uk so if you want to send a message we'd really love to hear from you and if you have a question or a comment do send a voice message if you can and we'll include it in the podcast if we can fit it in you're listening to ucl generation one turning science and ideas into climate action So it's time to get into today's topic, which is plant-based food. Now, I sometimes think that one of the reasons climate action doesn't get more press is that it often seems so mundane. You know, there's all these people talking about shiny robots and fancy genetics. And perhaps it's a little bit harder to focus our attention on the really basic grassroots things that do often matter quite a lot more. Now, I find the grassroots stuff really interesting because I think they're things we can all get involved in directly. We can't all have a shiny robot, but we can all make decisions about what we eat. So we're starting this series with the most mundane, topic of all. What should we feed ourselves? And we've got a particular focus on plant-based diets and I have to declare an interest here. I've been a vegetarian all my life and my diet now is almost entirely plant-based but what has been interesting is watching people's attitudes to that change over my lifetime. Now we've got three fabulous guests today to discuss all of this. We have Professor Tim Lang who's an Emeritus Professor of Food Policy at City University in London Tim Van Berkel, who is the managing director and co-founder of the Cornish Seaweed Company, and Dr. Carol Dallin, an associate professor in sustainable food systems here at UCL. And I want to start with Tim Lang. Could you just summarise why is it that plant-based diets have suddenly become part of the climate debate? Because no one was really talking about that five years ago, and suddenly it's everywhere. What happened?
1: Uh, well, we were talking about it, actually, but we were talking about it, we academics, to ourselves. What's happened is it's gone public, and for pretty good reasons, really. The evidence about the impact of animal production, uh, and therefore uh, uh, meat, meat and dairy, has become overwhelming. On greenhouse gas emissions, on biodiversity loss, the driving of land use to produce grain to then feed animals, and soya and things like that, but also embedded water in foods land use basically but also it's a double dose of evidence because it's not just the ecosystem's evidence uh, but also the public health evidence so in that sense the publicity that you're raising Helen, about um, plant-based diets is, is a, a rare example of where academic data has actually informed public discourse.
3: And could you just summarize for us, you know, some of that data? You know, what is the difference that a plant-based diet makes?
1: Oh, it's absolutely massive. The reduction of land use if you switch to a plant-based diet is significant. The, the reduction of greenhouse gases goes down the more you get towards a vegan diet. That's not to say vegan diets are perfect. They have lots of problems in other respects. But the evidence uh, on both embedded water, on land use, on biodiversity impacts, on public health, nutrition is very, very good indeed. Because essentially what's happened, uh, I'm sure colleagues would agree on this, is that over the last 70 years, as economies have got richer, they tend to trade up and not just extend the range of foods that they eat, but they change the types of foods they eat and they start eating festival foods every day and festival food number one is meat and that's part of the complexity. We academics revel in complexity but then it becomes very hard to translate and a rarity is translating it down to plant-based diets are broadly good news for lots and lots of reasons.
3: Well we will come back to some of those details but now I want to come to Tim van Berkel because Tim you work on something which isn't it's one of those food types that we don't think about very much? So, give us your spiel for seaweed.
0: <laughs> um, the podcast needs to be a bit longer, I think, to give all the the good <laughs> benefits uh, that seaweed can bring. But um, we talk about food here, of course, and seaweed contains high amounts of a lot of trace elements, uh, magnesium, iron, zinc, copper, potassium—you name it. But it's also high in protein. So, in a way seaweed can be that kind of plant-based resource that can substitute meat for the reasons that we eat it. Apart from the fact that people like eating meat, it's texture and all that, maybe that's something that seems not so good at.
3: Well, perhaps describe what the uh, Cornish Seaweed Company does and and how it got started.
0: Uh, We started about 10 years ago. Me and my, uh, my friend Carol Warwick Evans started harvesting seaweed because we love to live near the ocean. We love to live near Cornwall. And we both wanted to make a living down here. Um, then Caro heard the BBC4 program Farming Today, uh, which talked about health benefits and nutritional benefits, uh, but also the environmental benefits of seaweed. And we thought, well, oh, wait a second. It's a big industry in Scotland, in Ireland, in the Far East. But in England, we're not really doing anything about it. So it kind of makes sense, like, why don't we just do something with it and see if we can make a job, uh, a living out of it? Now we're 10 years down the line and we have started the first seaweed farm uh, because we realized that harvesting seaweed uh, from the wild would kind of limit us because there's not enough seaweed out there, basically, uh, to harvest uh, and and to meet demand, which is growing exponentially, it seems. So we thought, well, we have to find new ways of of harvesting, of, of getting the seaweed to people's plates in a sustainable way. So farming was the way to go.
3: Well we will come back to that but I want to introduce Carol here and and Carol one of the things when we're talking about diets and the environment is is knowing what the effects are you know because most of the time when most of us buy food you know we go into a a supermarket or you know some kind of shop and there's a thing on the shelf and we you know, we don't know where it came from and we don't know what, you know, all the things that led up to it being on that shelf. So how how easy is it to know what effect the foods that we eat are having on the environment?
2: That's that's a great question and and you said where it's coming from and that's often something that we we cannot find even when we are asking supermarkets. So and that's something that will be essential I think in the future so that the consumer us we can make Uh, more informed choices, uh, because we hear, you know, and and it's true, uh, there are some general uh, principles that we can follow without knowing too much information, like we can, we should uh, choose more plant-based diet rather than meat, that will always reduce the environmental impacts. But Then there are also plant-based foods that have a big impact on water use, for example, or, or biodiversity, deforestation. So I think in the future, we need to include those information and trace much more how the food was made and where it's from to make sure it has the minimum environmental impact.
3: It sounds simple but but that it also sounds very complicated you know it sounds as though you could stick a you know a color code or a number or something on a packet but how hard is it to work out those impacts?
2: So the impact themselves we are getting really better and better data um, as time goes on and I think you know with, with satellite based imagery we can get a lot of information on the use of different resources. So I think if we know the origin, at least the the country of origin, it would be even better to know where in this this country it was grown. But already the country information would give us a lot of of detail. But the challenge, you know, you said the color code. And I think, you know, we went through the same debates with nutritional information. There are a lot of different things to put together. So as Tim Lang was saying, there is the biodiversity loss, the climate change, so greenhouse gas emissions, the use of water. So... It's not obvious how to combine those indicators into one, but I think that's that's something that we need to work on.
3: It strikes me as reminding me of this discussion of a of a book that was published many years ago now called the Omnivore's Dilemma. And and basically, I think the title says it all. The problem is that as as organisms, we are capable of eating very many things. You know, we're not like a cow which can just eat grass, right? There are lots of things mm-hmm. in, in our environment which we can eat, and the problem is choosing you know makes all this much more complicated tim lang how are we doing with food policy how do decisions get made about what we eat is it is it that consumers really choose or is it pushed by for you know political reasons how do we work out what to eat basically
1: Uh, I'm going to be infuriatingly academic and say, well, it's complex, Helen. (laughs) But that's the truth.
3: We wouldn't Uh, have had you on the podcast otherwise.
1: And and what (laughs) what do we academics love but uh, wallowing in complexity? But the truth is consumers wallow in complexity. Without knowing it, they use multiple criteria when they're buying foods. What we're dealing with uh, now in policy is how to take this complexity and translate it into, if not Complex solutions, but at least more simplified complex solutions. Uh, so there is a difficulty for policymakers of how to deal with the realities that their voters, their constituents, their um, supporters, the political parties, their supporters, what they want. And unpicking that. It is actually quite tricky. I have some sympathy for policymakers. Uh, We academics have long time horizons. Uh, They have very short time horizons. Consumers have very immediate time horizons. They want food now and they want it all the time. But the good news is we're beginning to get some clarity. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I think, has been very good at injecting complex policymaking into the simple issue, the one issue of greenhouse gas, and saying, well, here are the multiple things that you've got to do. The politicians just want to do one thing. In fact, the only way we're going to address the... Quadruple whammy of 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 climate and and food is by having multiple interventions.
3: Well, I want to contrast that because I mean you bring up the complexity and it's and it's a it's an important issue. But I also think that there are people like. Tim Van Berkel on the ground, you know, and and Tim seaweed Tim now this is mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry to call you That's that. Good. I'm sure you've been called it before. Yeah. Um, but but from your point of view, you're sort of at the other end of this. Is that you're almost trying to introduce a new food? You know, in this country, you know, the Welsh have had a, some history of eating seaweed. Some parts of Essex have, but most of England certainly doesn't have a culture of eating seaweed. And so you're you're in the position of almost bringing in a new food you know there's these consumers they've got all this other choice and it's all complicated and then you turn up with another thing (laughs) and I was just wondering what what's it like to introduce a new food what kind of reactions do you get?
0: To be honest it was very difficult to start with especially you you have to start from scratch and especially with seaweed I think seaweed the name already implies you know it it has the word weed in it which is not very positive to start with so Uh, We had to really start changing people's perceptions about it. When we started the business, for instance, we set up uh, stores at food markets and people would just walk past and say, seaweed, why would I want to eat that? It's disgusting. It's rotting rotting on the beaches. It stings. I don't want to eat that. You really need to educate people and show people what seaweed can do, all the health benefits and nutritional benefits and the environmental benefits, but also taste, of course. So it was really a long educational process that we had to go through. And that kind of, that worked a little bit. But what kind of, there was a shift a few years down the line when we start from when we started. And that's when kind of famous chefs started to um, uh, clock onto it as well. And people like Jamie Oliver started using seaweed. Youth Only Whittingstall, they started using seaweed. And all of all of a sudden, it became kind of cool to use it and to eat it. And the media started picking up on it because it became this environmental champion and this nutritional powerhouse. So it became kind of a superfood on, in all different aspects. And that kind of made it take off. So we really seen that, really, that shift from something that people would not even dare touch with the barge ball to, yes, give me that. I want it. I know it's good for me. It's good for the environment. And it makes me cool as well to eat it.
3: Well, that's uh, so. I can say that when I was uh, on the beach in Cornwall with Tim, he he gave me some seaweed to eat, and it was like tangy lettuce. Actually, I I quite liked it. It was um, one of the little red ones, I think you gave me. But it it was it it didn't taste like I thought seaweed would taste. And I know that sounds really stupid, but I was you know it was it was like a nice salad. Um, so I was really <laughs> impressed. But I was interested in that. So that thing what you're what you're talking about is incentives, basically. So we've got a health incentive. There's an environmental incentive. There's a cool incentive, and it sounds as though actually it's the cool incentive that made the biggest difference is is that is is that does that just get people hooked but then they stay for other reasons or do they just want to be cool
0: no i think so there is definitely part uh, some people who would think who'd eat seaweed for the coolness factor but i think what you'll see with those is they'll that, that part of your customer base will tail off very quickly. But what stays is people who really believe in the product. So they don't do it for the coolness factor. They, they know it's beneficial for their health. They know it's beneficial for the environment. Um, so, so they stick with it and, and they kind of get used to it. So they regularly eat it and it becomes part of their daily, their daily nutrition, really. So those are the people kind of that seem to be growing because we can't get enough seaweed harvested everything is sold basically that we harvested yesterday it's, it's sold the day the day after
3: so there's a lot of demand well that i mean that shows we can change our eating habits i guess which is which is an encouraging thing and um, carol i'm curious about global food production because we're talking mm-hmm. or you know the sort of context for this is that we live in one country that does things one way mm-hmm. um but there's also global food systems how do we do in this country when it comes to Plant based food and sustainable eating, and how does that compare with the rest of the globe? So,
2: in the UK, and that's the same for a lot of your other European countries and uh, other developed countries in, in, in Asia and America, uh, we don't have a sustainable diet mostly because we eat too much animal products, so too much meat and dairy. But yeah, you talk about global food systems, and that, that's something that we, we work on a lot because. Uh, The UK is one of the countries in the world that imports a lot of its food supply, unlike some other countries. So it's not just about how we are farming in the UK, but it's also how our trade partners are farming and what do we import from, from abroad. So this is, this is tricky for policy because, you know, they tend to think about just what happens within the borders uh, of the UK, for example, uh, and not so much how to control imports. Uh, although, you know, now with Brexit, we talk a lot about trade policy, how to avoid, but we're thinking more about how to protect the local farmers and not necessarily how to try to minimize the environmental damage overall. So, yeah, I think it's important to think not just about each end, like not just about the diets, how people should change their diets, or not just about farming, like farmers have to uh, just stop farming livestock and switch to other things. Uh, we have to think about all these links as well in the systems and how we can influence and basically promote those shifts towards more sustainable food systems.
3: So I want to come back to plant-based diets specifically, um, Tim Lang. And I w- I want, I'm want i curious about the biggest misconceptions about plant-based diets. Now, I've been vegetarian all my life. I'm mostly vegan now. And I've seen an amazing change in public attitudes towards vegetarianism and vegans and even just f- you know dinners without meat in them actually and i was just wondering about the the misconceptions about plant-based diets what are the things people worry about that perhaps they shouldn't worry about? Um, and maybe what are the things they worry about that perhaps they should if they're thinking about switching to a plant-based diet?
1: Goodness me, that's a big question, Helen. Uh, we could talk for, for about 10 days about that. The the world of food is filled with misconceptions. Uh, and that's uh, the, the the nightmare, but also the, the charm of uh, academia. We try and help sort that out. Well, let me be really... Uh, uh, so difficult. Uh, veganism has sometimes these days basks in sort of saintly holiness. Actually, vegans are main drivers of of soya use, and that's very problematic for a country like Britain. And uh, we've got to think through what is a sustainable diet, i.e. a low impact on ecosystems, high impact on health, affordable, etc. What's a a sustainable diet look like in different parts of the world? But there are some misconceptions ahead, Helen, not just misconceptions from the past. I I think that goes back to a, a, a common theme across all three of us, Tim Seaweed, Carol and myself, Tim Policy, which is that this is a complex world and there are ways through it to address what we know we've done to the food system, to the planet, to public health, to culture. And we haven't got much time to sort it out, actually, if the truth be known. The ecosystems are really stressed. The public health damage is really stressed from shifts in diet. So we've got to actually narrow the gap between what's going on in production and processing and what's going on in consumption with what the data say we should be doing. It's possible to change diets. You're quite right. I think all three of us would agree on that. But the issue is, at the moment, no policy bodies are really getting a grip of that. What you're getting is recommendations on from an inquiry about X for what to do about X. But the problem is food is A to Z. The critical issue, I think, is to get a grip of consumers. The elephant in the room is consumption.
3: So one of the things I hear in what you're saying is that we talk about a plant-based diet as though that's one thing. And actually, there are lots of plants, right? There are lots of different ways of... Take you know, taking in nutrition, what different types of plant based diet are there? Well, I the guess, answer is asking. lots.
1: I mean the good thing, uh, ever the optimist, uh, despite the evidence, I'm an optimist, I always say, and the evidence is terrible mostly but there are things emerging it is really good that the vegan movement is having these sort of debates it's terrific the vegetarian movement the same i think the the mass public is beginning to have a debate there are shifts going on the problem is they're not fast enough and there is a mismatch between production and consumption
3: I'm going to interrupt you there. Sorry, I've got a very quick question for seaweed, Tim. Um, And then another question for Carol. We are running out of time horribly quickly here. Does seaweed have the potential to be scaled up and still be sustainable?
0: It can definitely be scaled up. There's a lot of ocean around there that we can farm without having a detrimental impact on the environment, especially when we compare it to land-based farming.
3: That was a very succinct reply. Thank you very much. Um, and Ka- Carol, Carol, just finally, I mean, do you think we're going in the right direction on all of this? What do you see when you look ahead? Are we trying to do the right things? And and what can we do as individuals?
2: So actually, this question, what can we do? I think people are asking themselves more and more, which is good because I feel like, you know, there is some sometimes uh, pessimism about what, you know, people uh, willingness to, to change their behavior for the greater good. But I think still overall, there is some, some hope in that direction. And actually food is one of the big levers that people can, when they have the choice, make a choice that will help them and, and and the planet. And so if we inform them and if we, as you know, Tim Lang said, the policy and the environment changes so that people know what is best for them, best for the planet, they might not always choose it, but I think there will be a shift. And also something about misconception is that everyone needs to go vegan. I think that's not what we are saying. And every A meal where you avoid to eat meat is going to have an impact. It's not like a diet where you're trying to lose weight and it's not working. Every time you choose not to eat meat, it will have an impact. So it's not black and white and and everybody can play a role.
1: Consumers need help to do the great transition that... Mm -hmm. Carol is talking about and that's Mm -hmm. what they're not getting study after study shows that consumers when they're given all the kind of information uh, that we academics produce they say why weren't we told this they don't get this in advertisements they don't get this so the the critical issue has to be how can we get not just business to do this but governments to pull the whole thing together to change the infrastructure to invest in different ways, to generate and support consumers in the culture shift. It's possible to do it, but at the moment, no government is really giving it the priority it ought to.
3: Okay, well, we are out of time. So sadly, we're going to have to finish there. Thank you all very much. So many different perspectives, um, lots of different ideas, and thank you very much for your time.
1: And a lot of agreement, a lot of agreement. Uh, Thank you. Very nice to meet you, Carol and Tim Seaweed.
3: Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. We're just about to get Mark's roundup of all the climate news stories that you need to know about this week. But just before that, just want to spend a moment to encourage you to get involved in the podcast and UCL's climate work. You can find all about that at ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change so you can rate and subscribe to the podcast we'd love it if you do that do send us some feedback send us comments and questions to the email address podcasts at ucl.ac.uk and do connect to us on twitter and instagram but now it's time to join mark maslin for the climate news roundup
4: This is the Generation 1 weekly roundup of climate news. Top of the news is of course the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its effect it has had on global energy prices. The EU has announced it's tripling its renewable energy installation for the next decade to increase energy security. As across Europe, many people's domestic energy costs have doubled, but so have the energy companies' profits. BP's profits more than doubled to $5 billion in the first three months of this year, the highest quarterly profit in more than a decade. Many experts are calling on the UK government to limit price rises and if not, then consider a windfall tax on the oil and gas companies. In other news, Grammy award-winning singer Billie Eilish has announced she will be performing at a major multi-day climate change event called Overheated in London's O2 Arena in June. Eilish has made many public statements in support of climate action. Finally, to China. Analysis by the Carbon Brief shows that China plans to add at least 570 gigawatts of wind and solar power, more than doubling its installation capacity in just five years. This would put China on track to peak its emissions between 2025 and 2030, sufficient to meet its country's international commitments, but only if the economy stays relatively low like today. But much more will be needed if they are to achieve net zero by 2060 as announced at COP26.
3: That's it for this episode of Generation One from UCL, turning climate science and ideas into action. Do get in touch if you've got a question or you'd like to suggest a guest for the podcast. You can find us on email and Instagram and Twitter. Do have a look at the UCL climate website. There's loads of stuff on there. And do keep following this podcast and raters if you can. I'm Helen Cheresky, and the next edition of Generation One from UCL will be available next Wednesday. And Mark and his guests will be considering the impact of gender issues on the environment and climate change. But that's all for this week. Goodbye.